0: Now, And we are running. So I'm just going to do a brief intro, and then uh, we'll get to the questions, okay? Okay. Three, two, one. Welcome to another edition of And Another Thing podcast. I am one half of your hosts, Tony Clement. Jody Jenkins uh, had an emergency when we were going to record this, so he uh, sends his reg- regrets, but I am uh, happy to... Uh, Uh, Keep the show going because I know our listeners are anxious for every episode, or they should be anyway. Today I've got uh, a great uh, honor to have with us as our guest, Ms. Miranda Mulholland. You know, uh, this show uh, has some political guests, we have some uh, guests who are good social commentators, and we have some musical guests because uh, both Jody and I are so into music. And Miranda is a violinist and singer. She was a member of the Great Lakes Swimmers uh, band for seven years and is currently in the duo Harrow Fair. Uh, she is one half of the duo; the other half being Andrew Penner. Uh, she is Juno nominated for Roots Traditional uh, Album of the Year. Did you win that, Miranda, or did you not? Were you nominated? Tony,
1: I- not with, oh. but, uh, it was an honor to
0: be nominated. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. You, uh, you're, you're saying exactly what you should be saying. Uh, she founded, and this is how I got to know her, uh, the Muskoka Music Festival, which uh, sort of uh, obviously in COVID year was not to be in person, but we're looking forward to it being there next year. She is also, and I think this is important an artist advocate for intellectual property protection and chairs the Music Canada Advisory Council. Please give a warm and another thing podcast welcome to Ms Miranda Mulholland. Yay for virtual clapping uh, social distancing clapping from our audience. Miranda, thank you for being on our program today.. Oh,
1: thank me, Tony.
0: so my first question is uh, how did you start in music what what was it did did the switch turn on or were were you introduced to it at a young age tell us that little journey for us
1: oh yeah well my brother uh, started playing violin when he was very young um, and I, I'm very competitive Tony so I wanted to be better than him so when I was about three I think I um, Declared, I was going to play violin as well, and I started lessons at four. And uh, well, <laughs> it's um, I'm going to be 40 in a couple of days, so uh, it's been a, it's been a yeah, that's a pretty long career already 30, 33 years. You've got your uh, thirty seven years of playing the violin.
0: Yeah, you've got your ten thousand hours in easy. Then that's what they say Ten hour ten thousand hours to be good at something. So uh, you've uh, you've lapped that several times over. Um, And so, uh, young age, always at it, uh, and then COVID hits. So tell us what you, how you kind of got through those dark early months of COVID. And uh, I'm going to broaden the question out so it's a two-parter. You know, how are your fellow musicians doing during this time of COVID? Exactly.
1: Well, this is, I mean, we were the first real uh, first out, you know, kind of thing, or the Junos were cancelled, obviously that was sort of when we knew this was um, this had affected the music industry in such a huge way, um, and we're going to be the last back, really, because of just gathering um, how how we can actually make any kind of a sustainable living, you have to have people in, in a room sharing an experience together, so, um, so sort of to the answer to your second question. Uh, it's pretty dire for a lot of uh, my fellow musicians. Um, you mentioned that I do a lot of artist advocate work with um, intellectual property and things, but I've also been um, just very uh, vocal with all three levels of government. I've been, um, so since since March 15th, really, just um, trying to be the voice at the table for artists um, and uh, contributing to, yeah, all of the sort of emergency plans and then of figuring out health solutions and then rebuild plans so uh, i've been pretty busy on zoom calls since march fifteenth, and not not so much maybe creating uh, as i'd like to be doing but um i'll tell you this is the first time in in about 20 years that i i've been in one place yeah as a touring musician i've never been in one place for this long before um,
0: so that's been kind of interesting. It's been kind of crazy, and and I, I know how uh, many musicians and artists are struggling with this, and others are trying to find, refine their audience or to keep connected to their audience. There's been some great live streaming events uh, that I've I've watched uh, either for charity or for just just keeping their fans in the loop. So artists are being creative, which is great. Uh, and uh, it's it's great to see some of the music alive. But I, I gotta say, uh, and my audience knows this because I've talked about this. I'm I'm a live music, like that's what I that's what I crave. And uh, streaming is fine. Uh, I I I don't I'm not trying to detract from that, but I, I'm I'm so looking forward to being in a venue with thousands of other people, or hundreds of other people, or dozens of other people, seeing live music. So uh, I I you know so can you project into the future at all? And uh, <laughs>
1: well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I you know I think I think you're you're exactly right, and I think that's such an important part of all this and. I was part of some really interesting research we did with Abacus Data in Ottawa, uh, and what we found was many people feel exactly the same as you, is that you know, online, digital is great for now, it's a good stopgap, but it will never replace that live feeling. Um, But, you know, I'm having a bit of an existential crisis myself, because um, if I can't play music the way I want to, which is, you know, me and my bandmates together on a stage playing with, with a live audience together in a room and have that amazing thing that happens, that's all, that only happens that time because of all those certain people who happen to be in that room at that moment, um, that ephemeral thing, you know, that you're talking about, uh, do I want to do it anymore? Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult. I don't, I don't find it the same just sort of playing to my camera or uh, talking into my phone. You know, mm-hmm. It's not, I don't get that kind of, um, I don't get that awesome energy that's, that's so magical.
0: Well, I uh, gosh, don't don't hit, don't hit it us with that, Miranda. <laughs> You've got to you got to you got to stay strong. We want you to be out there and I think once uh, things open up because they will inevitably, it, this can't go on forever. Uh, that uh, I think you'll you'll get uh, that that uh, desire to get out there again. I have every confidence yeah. in you. Hey, uh I got to ask uh, so uh, artist protection uh, what What is the biggest challenge? What, uh, what sort of files are you working on to help protect artists uh, in their IP or the business models, that kind of thing?
1: Well, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot going on right now. Um, last year, there was a, a, a report that came out through the Department of Heritage called Shifting Paradigms, which actually suggests a lot of really great ways that um, there could be some changes made to help artists protect their work better in this digital age. Uh, obviously, we're up against, you know, a, a giant that has never existed before, and that's Google, um, who are the richest corporations in the history of ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and so they have very great lobbyists. They have all these, these uh, they've got all the levers they can pull, but um, right now, you know, they're sort of the people who are letting the water out of the bathtub over here, giving everything away for free, and therefore... Uh, and claiming, you know, they've got some broad, safe harbors that make sure that they don't have to pay the same amount. You know, they pay, I like, think, one-twentieth of what, say, something like Spotify pays. Um, and so kind of until we get rid of that uh, labor, um, then we can't really uh, negotiate fair wages for musicians. So that's sort of a big one. Right. Um, obviously hotly disputed, but... Um, but uh, so is it
0: on, on Google, on Google mm-hmm. platforms they're paying a pittance? Is, is that... So is that what you're telling us?
1: Yeah,
0: you, well, YouTube. Um, oh, YouTube. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the big elephant in the room is YouTube. Gotcha. Hey, can I ask about the economics of mu- music streaming, though? Because uh, I, I learned recently that uh, there's evidence that art- artists are changing the structure of their songs because they don't get paid if people switch off the song before 30 seconds and so the, you know uh, like I, I think of the uh, the intro to Hotel California where there's an, a long instrumentation to that song uh, that would never happen today because artists know they've got to get to the verse and they've got to get to the catchy chorus before 30 seconds or people might switch off and they won't get their uh, royalty have you heard of this before is this something that yeah. artists
1: And I, and I think this is sort of this is applicable to more kind of I guess mainstream music, so more popular music. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, don't force get to the chorus. It's never been more real than now. Uh, but there's sort of an interesting um, dichotomy here because number one, you, there's, oh, there's a really great article in the, in the New York Times about this. So that you don't want to you don't want people to um, to be wanting to switch. Like streamer streaming services want to keep you listening to their service, and so if they can put things on that pe- people won't switch the song. Um, so it has to be either um, really catchy and engaging and just continually catchy and engaging or just not not um, jarring in any way. Mm-hmm. So there's also been a lot of sort of very moody, kind of unobtrusive music that, that is coming out. That's sort of, okay, well, we won't be, we won't, we're not going to try to make a too big a statement, but just sort of background-y music. Interesting. So that's also
0: happening. Okay, okay. So the ambient, more ambient stuff, that's the background uh, uh, things. uh, You used to call it elevator music. I think that's a bit unfair. Uh, But uh, (laughs) it just did different ambient sounds too, eh?
1: Yeah, sort of wallpaper music.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, and the other thing uh, that was a concern before COVID was the economics of music venues in downtowns. You know, downtown commercial space uh, is always at a premium and uh, landlords, you know, uh, want more and more. uh, They're they're demanding higher and higher rents. And so I think there was a task force in Toronto that was looking at how to make sure that we still had music venues in downtown Toronto. Is that something you're involved with as well?
1: The, I think the sort of second incarnation of that was the Toronto Music Advisory Council. Um, they're still going. And, um, you know, more than ever, this is going to be very, very important because the venue ladder system is what gets us from your very first gig to playing Massey Hall. You know, and if, you, if you don't have a place to play uh, as you grow with your career and you, you bring in fans and you have more and more fans, So it has to, have, it has to be very different levels of, of venues, different sizes. Um, you know, and and, and accessibility. So, right, uh, right. so this is a huge, a huge issue, and not just in Canada. I mean, this is worldwide. Um, trying to maintain venue ladders, and there's a Music Cities movement that's actually very interesting, which provides cities with a toolkit on kind of how to keep um, how to keep this robust. But you know, you're right. I mean, rents are skyrocketing. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens post-COVID uh, with downtown rents, Right. as so many people transition um, online, I mean, like, what about the TV tower? All those lawyers who, yeah, they can work from home. I mean, it, that that rent is astronomical.
0: Well, that's an interesting point uh, that you raise. I hadn't thought of it that way, but of course, what, what in mean, my discussions uh, about commercial space downtown. Uh, we've got a lot of empty office buildings that are going to remain empty for a while. So maybe the, there'll be downward pressure on rent rather than upward pressure. So that's, uh, that's something to look out for, uh, for sure. Have you got any good on-the-road stories for us? <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, it depends on how ra- what kind of rating you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have a rating for the show, so you, you, can, you can go all out here.
1: I think. I mean, I was in a band called the Mahones, which was my first, you know, I went to opera school um, and then did a full 180 and joined a Celtic punk band.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the Mahones, yeah.
1: So, had some we had some pretty uh, hairy times, I should say, Um, but it was my very, very first uh, touring experience. So I went, you know, right out of opera school and then we had our very first gig. I remember playing the Marquee in Halifax, which is still there. Yeah. Um, Owned by my, my friend, and, uh, and it's, it's an incredible venue. And it really was. They, it was the Mahones, this is sort of around 2000, 2001. You know, in Celtic music, I don't know if you remember, but there were Celtic pubs in every city. They were just cropping up. Yeah. And, um, you know, Great Big C was on the rise, and the Mahones as well. And so we had an incredible crowd at the marquee, and I thought, this is amazing. You know, there's Jimmy Rankin coming to hang and party with us, and we had this. You know really great time the wine was flowing the, the thought it was just fantastic and then our second gig we flew to winnipeg <laughs> and we played um <laughs> this venue that is also a strip club uh in the daytime and then it turns oh. into a venue at night and uh and then i remember going to my hotel room you know and there was blood on the door oh. and my hair and the soap and it was just uh. oh my god going from you know, sold-out show at the Marquee with, you know, Canadian celebrities and all this fun to this place in Winnipeg, the zoo, where, uh, uh, where um, yeah, strip clubs, those lottery machines, ah uh, divey, divey place. And, um, you know, and I really just in two gigs had kind of understood what the music industry is. Yeah,
0: was. that's right. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, not the glory that uh, everybody thinks it is. got to tell you one story uh I, I just listened to a, a, an interview with uh, Huey Lewis, uh, and uh, he was talking, he did that song, The Heart of Rock and Roll, and uh, uh, the uh, the interviewer said, you know, I got a bone to pick with you because in the version that, that it was in Canada, he would, you know, at the end of the song, he was shouting out, you know, uh, Toronto, Montreal, right? And... Uh, and uh, that was just in the Canadian version. So they had a different version. He, he basically was in the recording studio shouting out names of cities so that they could have different cities and different countries for whatever recording was in that country. And uh, Huey, Huey was saying that the original version that they wanted him to sing was, you know, Toronto, Halifax. And then Huey Lewis said, no, we're not doing Halifax. The heart of rock and roll can never be Halifax. Uh, So I refused to say Halifax. Then he toured and was actually in Halifax and realized the great pub structure, uh, you know, and live venue structure that is Halifax and and felt very embarrassed that he he refused to shout out Halifax for the recording. So that's just a great little Canadiana story from Huey Lewis. I wanted to add it to our podcast. Oh, I love that. I
1: love that for a beautiful
0: alabama. Exactly. Huey Lewis uh, felt very guilty about not mentioning it, but uh, uh, I, uh, I've got one other kind of intellectual property question to ask you, and we can talk about a couple of other things before we run out of time. But uh, I've uh, on this podcast, I've been railing against the Led Zeppelin case, uh, which is now going to the Supreme Court of the United States. And so Led Zeppelin is being sued by, uh, a band, uh, because basically, uh, the, uh, the intro to Stairway to Heaven, which everybody knows that arpeggio, uh, but the, the band's song had different notes in their arpeggio and they have a different tempo than the Stairway to Heaven arpeggio. And it, it, it just boggles my mind that, uh, that this is actually has to go all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States to find resolution, uh, and I, I I know you're an intellectual property protector. I get that, but there's got to be. I mean, we can't strangle bands through lawsuits uh, when they are you know when the notes are different and yet they're still being uh, they're still being sued. I, I'd love to get. I probably have a very rudimentary understanding of this. I'd love to get your take on it.
1: Well, I think I think I'd need to know for clarity. Um, different notes or are they, the, but are they the same intervals? But also, an arpeggio is an arpeggio. I mean, this seems very far fetched. In that, you know, there are only so many notes. Let's be honest. And yes. There's only so many places to put them.
0: And there's only so many pleasant chord changes.
1: dawn of the scale Western music anyway um, so I, I you know this seems, this, this seems a little far-fetched but there is you know there is actually a definition of kind of what I believe it's five notes in a row that um, I have to look it up but yeah, uh, yeah I think there, there is that actual definition of what is you know too far or what how much you can copy how, or what can be similar
0: um, and uh I, yeah, I've that's, heard that's, that's an I'm going to do a little reading on that yeah here. I, I encourage I, that looking, because I've I've been ranting and raving about it. I think uh, Alan Cross has been on it as well. Uh, he's been ranting and raving about it as well. So it's, it's obviously. A, a, I mean, what kind topic? of band has the money to do Led
1: Zeppelin? Honestly.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know they're just they're, they're still at it. I mean, it's 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 crazy. So I that that begs the question: What do you do when you've got a? Uh, I also heard an interview recently with Nick Lowe, and uh, they they asked him. What, you know? how do you know you've got a, a song and how do you make sure that it's your song and not just inspired by somebody else's song? And, he, sa- and he, he actually said, if the song sounds really good, I assume that I copied it from someone else. And then he has to do a whole research to make sure that that isn't the case. Uh, do you have a method uh, of making sure you're not copying from your subconscious?
1: And um, you know, singing it to, to Andrew, just this, I've got this riff, and I've got this, you know. And he'll say, he'll say well, "Well, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds a little like," you know. And then we'll play it, and I think, "Oh God!" I mean, actually, there was—I came to him and said, uh, "I've got this song," uh, and I sang it to him, and we we worked on it. And then I was listening to—I was in the supermarket, and I heard um, Serena Ryder's Stampa, and, Stompa and uh, <laughs> I thought, "Oh no, I've just <laughs> written Stompa. <laughs> um, so we had to change. But um you know I I I, don't, I like to write with um with words in mind as well so um they kind of come together like little snippets uh and then I sort of stitch them together almost like a quilt.
0: I oh, guess. so you don't do the melody first and then the lyrics it's kind of uh, simultaneous?
1: Yeah, they kind of come together and um and so because they're sort of attached at conception, I guess. Um, that's sort of a bit of a protector against uh, too much robbery. I mean, look, tell me, like, I mean, I have a degree in I've, you know, my, my music, I went to opera school, but uh, but I'm a real neophyte when it comes to classic classic albums. I mean, I, oh. I, there's so much I don't know about popular music because I was a classical kid, and then I jumped into to, you know, sort of folk and traditional and, um, and, that, and that whole area. So that's been really interesting because I didn't have a lot of those influences, and that's almost protected me
0: from mm-hmm.
1: too much of that,
0: you know? Right, right, um, right. I don't have a, you know, I don't have a, an obsession with Bob
1: Dylan or anything. I mean, the great part about not coming to the party until later is you can just sort of
0: get the best of the best, and you don't have to go through right, it. Right, right, right. No. Uh, just a little hint, little hint for you, a hard day's night is taken, just so you know. <laughs> Okay, I'll write that down. <laughs> yeah, so Muskoka Music Festival. What's what's the future? I, I love that you're actually involved in creating a music festival. Kudos for that. What's what's the future of that festival?
1: Well, I'm really, I'm so proud of it. You know, this is our this is our fourth year, so we'll be going into our fifth year next year. Obviously, a very different year, but. We still were able to pivot—the uh, magical word of 2020. Mm. We um, we filmed a bunch of musicians. We I I, I picked hand-picked a really great group of musicians. We filmed them at Blue Rodeo Studios, and they uh, the videos were shown before the movies at Muskoka Drive-In. Right. So so we did a really cool like little thing, and they were all summer long. And I got to introduce every band um, via video. So you know, we kind of had a placeholder, which was great, and I got to pay. The artists which was really important to me that that artists are being paid during this time um and then we're just sort of regrouping and uh figuring out what it's going to look like i mean there is no you know we don't we don't know so um i'm i'm gonna be pretty um just try to remain uh versatile and, and nimble as we think about next summer but um you know i the, the one of our events is um we take over music on the barge for one of the sundays in and Gull Lake park uh, and I really can't think of a safer venue. Yeah,
0: it's great. And, um, yeah, great venue. The
1: stage is distance it's in the water, so uh, the band can remain safe, um, and the and then people on the, on the on the uh, grass or the beach, or you can come in your boat. So I, I mean, I think that we'll at least have um, an option there. Right. Um, and I'm excited about that. And um, but you know, it, it it means so much to me because my great great grandfather built the opera house. He was the mayor of Gravenhurst and had the opera house built on the main street, and uh, that's where that's our main venue for the festival. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really hoping that we'll be able to return uh, in in a uh, you know, a gathering capacity because it is a magical weekend for me and it's been
0: really special. Oh well, I, we all very much enjoy it, and uh, it's it's so exciting. When I think about it so next year is going to be a big year because it'll have the return of the music festival presumably we'll have the Juno's 50th anniversary show uh, which uh, is very exciting to consider you know Canadian music awards uh, 50 years of that so I I just uh, I'll be doing I'll be crossing a lot of fingers and toes and uh, doing a lot of mantras and doing a lot of praying to make sure that all of that is possible next year right
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this um, you know, this has really brought the live music industry to its knees, and uh, you know, we have seen innovation, of course, but um, you know, artists, artists were very, are, are the most vulnerable, really, in, in this in this uh, live music community. Uh, they're at the heart of it, though. We, so many artists employ so many people, and uh, if they can't work, everyone's out of work, and um, so you know, we have to we have to support them and, and and make sure that that artists know how much they're loved and valued, and. You know, go to go to your favorite artist's website, buy albums, buy merch. You know, this there, um, there
0: are albums band being band. released. Uh, you know, Haim has a new album out. I think St. Vincent has a new album out. Uh, these are... Uh, by, by the way, I just mentioned two female... Uh, one a female band, one a female artist. Uh, lots of amazing music uh, going on uh, because... Uh, despite COVID. Uh, and so you're a female artist too. And... Uh, you must be very proud of of how female artists are really taking the stage by storm these days.
1: Well, you know we've been here all along, but it has been the representation in the music industry has has been um, you know it's woeful, sort of especially if you get to executive levels at uh, at, rec- at record labels. and you know that does definitely influence um, what gets picked up and who gets played and how they're marketed. Uh, so I'm glad that there is more of a focus. There's been some really great research on this. Uh radio stations, you know, the, the shocking amount of of uh discrepancy between what how men uh male bands played and uh, and female musicians played. And um, you know, it is changing. So still
0: still the case though, right?
1: Mm. Pardon?
0: It's still the case, uh, that that discrepancy?
1: Oh, absolutely. And wow. especially at certain types of radio, you know, rock or um country. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but it is changing and there's more awareness about it and that's, uh, that's really good. You know, when I, I, my, I have a band called Bellstar that we, we, we were signed um, uh, in about 2013 and, you know, we were called, you know, a girl band. It's like a, just, it was just the way that we were marketed, the way that we were discussed. Mm-hmm. And we, um, we were, it, it was hard. You know, we understood we had some advantages because we were all free women who played music, uh, all played our instruments very well and um, sang, but, um but we also, you know, we felt very disadvantaged in, in a number of other ways as well. So I've certainly experienced, experienced it from all over. I mean, even being the only girl in the band, you know. Right. Swimming, I was the only woman. And um, so many people would ask when we came into the venue, you know, whose, whose girlfriend I was rather than that I was just a musician in the band. So, I mean,
0: wow. It's,
1: it's changing, but it's slow.
0: Yeah. Well, keep at it. Uh, I I've been telling people my favorite uh, COVID album so far has been Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. I don't know whether you've had a chance to listen to oh, that. Oh God, so good! Yeah, it's so good. I
1: think your favorite album should
0: have been Sins We Made by Harold Fair. <laughs> it came out I think the same day, or maybe. <laughs> oh, is, is that right? Okay, <laughs> so much good stuff out there. I just want to thank Miranda Mulholland again from uh, us here at And Another Thing Podcast for being our guest today. Very, very interesting. And, of course, uh, you've got my full support. And uh, Jody Jenkins, where he here, would say the same thing. We want live music and we want uh, to see artists and want to pay for artists for live music. So uh, keep at it and we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you because I think the story is ongoing. Thanks for being part of our show. Thanks, Cody.
1: Thanks for having me.